Today is we're going to talk only we're going to talk about different aspects of regulation, okay? And so the the first lecture was about kind of the nuts and bolts, okay? Um, the reading, as I said, I consider complementary and supplementary. If there's something that wasn't clear, um, these hey, this reading may help you to, um, to to clarify something I talked about, and also supplementary in that seeing the as I said seeing the bigger picture size makes things easier to. Um, understand what the specific points I was talking about. So this is from your textbook. This is a, 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 a moderate size review. This paper, this Wolschegel paper, we're going to cover in the class, but this is the reference. It's, it's quite old, but it's, it's really a good paper, and it illustrates, first of all, it brings some techniques in that I'd like to talk about, as well as it gets, helps to illustrate the concepts. And Science doesn't call them use of views, nature does, but there's a little commentary, very short, two, two pages really, because it's half of this first page and half the second one, that accompanies that paper. And then something from a gene, textbook called Genes, and there are just a couple of specific things that I'm going to use that for. These are the pages I got that from, but if you understood the lecture portion, you won't need to, to use that text. It is on reserve, should be on reserve in the library. So the learning objectives, I'm just going to go through, through these relatively quickly um, and just tell you some of the key terms. We're going to look at how you terminate replication. There's a change, sorry, this is why telomerases. Telomerase is necessary, and it's, it's a subtle point, but it's why telomeres are necessary. Okay, and then I just want you to know some of the components involved. I've tried to um, condense this lecture a little bit. We'll talk about replicate, regulation and E. coli, some of the different systems. Um, Dr. Larrabee talked about these already once. Some of these, even though I would point here, I'm just covering one, one, one or two slides. Okay. Um, then we'll talk about the regulation you care. It's called licensing. Okay. And we'll talk about a little bit about that in a couple of different systems. We'll talk about something called the ORC cycle. And then we'll talk about the role of transcriptional activators, or what are traditionally transcriptional activators in replication. And then the last learning objective is just that we have a paper that we're going to discuss on Friday. And I'll talk a little bit more about that when we get 
to a particular point in the lecture. Um, really what this paper discusses are some concepts called replication stress and dormant and, and the role of dormant origins. Okay. This is a slide you've already seen. What's the goal? I just want to start with kind of what is the goal? Why, why, what's going on during DNA replication? What aspect of it do we want to really get at? And that's how do you precisely copy, just make one copy of the genome per cell cycle? Kind of the topics I'm going to discuss, and they pretty much go more or less with the learning objectives that I list. We're going to discuss termination briefly, telomeres and telomerase briefly, talk about a, a, a very kind of um, well characterized system in E. coli, talk about this topic of licensing, org cycle, and the role of transcriptional activators. Okay, so this pretty much goes not one for one, but more or less it follows the learning objectives. The latter four are all aspects of how you um, make sure that replication only, how do you regulate the start of re replication, how do you make sure it happens only once per cell cycle. This is a slide you've already seen, so I broke down the steps of, I broke down DNA replication into various steps, and we haven't discussed this last step, termination, and that's what we'll talk about now. Okay. Right. So we're only going to talk about termination E. coli is better characterized. There's a system that's well characterized in E. coli, and it just illustrates one way a biological system that um, organisms might use. So here's kind of just a schematic of the circular prokaryotic genome. Okay. In this case, they put the origin at 6 o'clock. Okay, remember, that's where replication starts. So replication starts there. It's bi-directional, so the two forks go off in two directions. They go along essentially at roughly at the same average speed, and they meet at 12 o'clock typically. And that's where, and I'm not going to go into the details, I don't really know, I, I think it's still actually exactly how those forks resolve each other is still something that people don't completely understand. But they meet here at 12 o'clock and replication ends. Yes? Is there a significance to that orientation of 6 o'clock and 12 o'clock? No, it's just, it's just drawn here for convenience. Okay, just draw it here for convenience. Okay. The, the only relevance to it is that the replication fork move on typically at the same average speed, so they're going to meet 180 degrees around on the circle. Okay. But what happens if you get some kind of lesion in the DNA and one of the forks has to stall? Okay. So that, let's say fork two, just so I'm closer to it so it's easier point, let's say it stalls and it has, and has to wait here until whatever issue has occurred is resolved. Fork one's going to continue around. And in theory, it would keep going. And that's not a situation, it can happen, but it's not, it's, it's not optimal because actually what occurs is that most of the transcription units go in the same direction. Not all, but most go in the same direction as the replication fork. And that's actually easier to deal with, so you don't have the things going head to head. Okay. So if replication fork one were to come around, it would start to run head to head into those transcription units. Okay. So what E. coli has evolved is this, terminate, this termination system that involves a DNA site called TER, T-E-R. There's two of them. And then a protein called TUS. Okay, and we'll talk about that in just a second. How does this system work? Okay. Well, one thing is it's asymmetric, meaning that 
When Tuss is bound to that tercite, the tur is not shown, but it doesn't say tur, but Tuss binds the tercite, it can draw replication in one, in one direction, the fork in one direction, but not the other. That's what I mean by the fact that it functions asymmetrically. Okay. If you go back to the previous, whoops, if you go back to the previous slide, why, why would you want that to be the case? Okay. You have the replication fork going. If it were to stop at this tur-tus site, it would stop here. The other fork would stop here, and you'd never get to the middle. That's why it needs to be asymmetric. It's really a backup. In case replication fork, one goes beyond 180 degrees around, this tur-tus system only stops this fork. Okay? It has to just wait here until the other one gets there, and then it resolves. Same thing, fork two. It's basically just a backup system in case it gets past 180 degrees around. You see why it needs to be that way? Okay, otherwise you never get to the middle, and that's why they function asymmetrically. How does it do that? Alright, right, so this is just the mechanism for how this TUS-TUR system works. We've talked about during DNA replication, a tool case that's unwinding the DNA out in front of the fork. Okay. As it's unwinding it, from the non-permissive side, that is the side that blocks the fork, what happens is as the helicase unwinds a region near that tercite, there's a cytosine that's on one strand. As it unwinds, it finds a pocket in the TUS protein, and it basically stabilizes the binding, and that allows it to be, that interaction to be strong enough that it stops the, the fork from proceeding. From the permissive side, that is where it can go through. The fork's coming from the other direction, so actually that C is on the other strand relative to the direction of the fork. So it, when, it, when it unwinds, that C doesn't bind in that pocket of the tuss, and so the fork can go through it. Okay, that interaction is not stabilized. Okay. And this is just just reiterate what you're looking at. So tur sites, they work asymmetrically, and the way they work is that there's a protein called TUS that binds to them. This is not anything I want you to spend too much time on, but just at the end of replication, for instance, with the prokaryotic systems, you have circular genomes, the two strands are intertwined, you need a topoise operation, remember that same enzyme that can put in, put in or take out supercoils. Basically, they cross DNA strands across each other in order to do that. So the way you resolve these intertwined circles is there's a member of the topoise homerase family that basically separates them. So it's just a little factoid. This is also another slide that you guys have seen. I broke down replication with regards to different hurdles or issues that the cell has to address. One of those was linear DNA ends. And so what do I mean by that? So at this point, we're moving on to the concept of telomeres. I think Dr. Partridge talked about these already. I just want to give some very basic facts with regards to, to why, why they're important for replication. So if you look at a replication fork, remember, you have those prime replication with RNA, okay? So here, and if you were to go forward, the RNA primer on this strand here, okay, would 
there would always be RNA at the end. So you're going to lose a little bit of DNA every time in replication if this were all that were occurring. Okay? And once again, over the you know, thousands, millions, whatever rounds of replication some cells might have to go through, during, you're going you know, to lose some every, every generation. And so eventually, you're going to lose that DNA. How do you address that issue? Well, you have a specialized fragment of DNA at the end of linear DNA called telomeres. Okay, so telomeres address that problem. That's why you need them. So they're specialized, and I, 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 don't, I didn't look at Dr. Park's lecture, but I imagine she probably told you something very similar to this already. But they're specialized G-rich structures at the end of linear chromosomes. That's the definition for, for this class. That's good enough. This is the definition of a telomer. Okay. How are telomeres made? Don't worry about all the details. Okay? I just have this up here just so I can illustrate that it's, it's this G-rich structure. The specialized um, enzyme that makes this is called telomerase. That's actually said. Telomerase is synthesized telomeres. And they're actually kind of interesting in that RNA is the catalytic component of the telomerase. Okay, so this gets to this idea of an RNA world at the beginning of, of at, is, is the beginning of life. Okay. And I'm not going to go into <clears throat> And then the last thing is that these G-rich structures form an unusual structure. These telomeres form an unusual structure, which kind of cap off and protect the ends. Okay, very, very general points about yeah. But there is, but the whole point of them is that they address this issue that the five prime ends of DNA wouldn't be replicated because you have to prime with RNA. So this ensures that you have DNA there on the five prime ends, that you don't lose that information on the five prime ends. Does anyone have any questions? That's all I'm going to say about telomeres. That's all I'm going to say about uh, termination. Okay. Okay, so let's talk, now let's talk about how you control replication at the start. So the first thing we're going to do is we're just going to spend a little bit of time on prokaryotic systems, and we'll spend the rest of time on eukaryotes. So in E. coli, replication is controlled by the binary protein called DNA-A. We've already discussed that. That's the um, origin binding protein, the initiator protein is the way, what we called it. It's what binds the origin. And then there's a protein called SeqA that blocks replication. Okay, so you have basically, it's a competition between the binding of DNA-A and this protein SeqA. How is that regulated? Well, it's regulated by a very simple chemical addition. Okay. Prior to replication, DNA is methylated on both strands. Okay, now we're talking about E. coli but it's fully methylated at a sequence called GATC. You don't need to know the specifics. Okay. When you go through replication, remember it's semi-conservative, the parental strand is going to maintain that methylation, but the newly synthesized strand, at least initially, is going to not be methylated, right? The nucleotides don't come in methylated. So people call this hemimethylation. Methylated. There's a protein that will eventually make the hemimethylated DNA fully methylated. Okay. But what happens is right after replication, okay, here's the methylated DNA goes through replication, it's hemimethylated. 
I, actually, this just reiterates what I said. But what's going to happen at this hemimethylated state is that the protein called CKA is going to bind there. It recognizes that origin when it's hemimethylated. So if the CKA is bound there, basically the DNA A can't bind. Okay. In addition to that DNA, in addition to blocking the DNA A, the CKA actually brings that hemimethylated DNA and it interacts with the inside of the membrane of the E. coli. And that's I, I'm not sure about the specifics, but that's also thought to help regulate this process. Okay. Okay. So hemimethylated DNA is bound by CK, and that helps it associate with the cell membrane. That's what this figure is trying to illustrate. Okay. So how is this DNA eventually going to bind? Well, really what's going on here now is a competition between the CK and the methylase, the protein that methylates the other strand. Okay. Eventually, the CK, you know, it's in equilibrium, and eventually, stochastically, that there's going to be, a, it's going to allow the the, um, the methylase to get in. You go to fully methylated state, and at that point, the DNA A binds. You can start replication. What's the consequence of this system? You don't know, need to know these numbers, but just to illustrate. So, when you go from after you replicate DNA, those GATC sites. They get methylated in about one minute other places in the genome. At the origin, it takes about 12 minutes. So that's how much it slows down the methylation. As I said, I, you don't need to know that number, but I'm just trying to illustrate, you know, in, in terms of time, because that's really what you're doing. You're slowing the time for replication to occur, so it's not going faster than the cell can replicate. Is that's the type of difference that you're making. Okay, so this is one way where um, this is how E. coli helps make sure that DNA replication is in sync. These things are all tied, of course, I'm not getting into all that, but they're all tied to how fast is the cell able to bind, how rich are the nutrients, all this other stuff. Okay. So the numbers I'm giving that 1 and 12 are actually kind of an average, or under ideal, under ideal growth conditions. It can actually slow down more if the growth conditions are poor. All right. So that's all I'm going to say about replication, the regulation of replication initiation in, in bacterial systems. Don't have any questions about that. Now let me just say, I had kind of those learning objectives, you know, kind of be able to discuss certain points. Remember, some of the questions, and I'll try to put up some practice questions um, today or tomorrow, but the questions I may ask, some may be kind of just describe the system, some may be a use of these facts in, in terms of interpreting experiments or designing small experiments that I give. I'll give you like a, you know, a setup and say design an experiment, okay? So you need to be able to apply some of this information as well. All right. Okay, moving on to eukaryotic systems. So what are the systems that are most commonly studied? Dr. Larrabee talked about these already when he talked about um, cell cycle last semester. What I'm saying here, from what I've seen of his lecture, pretty much I'm just repeating what he already said, so I'm going to try and go through it. Thoroughly, but briefly, okay? So there's two systems, yeast, and then xenopus and mammalian. And the main reason you use mammalian is that we're mammals. And xenopus is a much more robust system, but, but of course, we're, we're interested in what happens in humans. So, you know, we, those systems have been developed. In yeast, there are two cousins, Saccharomyces cerevisiae and Schizosaccharomyces pombe. 
um, in cell cycle, I think, um, in fact, I know that Dr. Larry talked about the fact that uh, Lee Hartwell won the Nobel Prize for his work with Cerevisiae, and Paul Nurse with Pombe, Tim Hunt won for his work with Xenopus. Yeast is, its power is in its genetics, although people do also use it as a biochemical system in some cases. Because it's haploid, there's no such thing as recessive, at least in the normal cell cycle, so you can see the effect of the mutation immediately. That's why the genetics, part of the reason why the genetics are so good. Um, um, you have a lot of genetic tools, I've kind of already referred that. And you can use temperature sensitive alleles, right? I think Dr. Larrabee talked about that. You have things that are, it's normal growth condition, and you have certain mutations in that yeast, and when you take it to a non-permissive temperature, that is one that's not ideal for that, for some mutant protein. Um, usually it's a, it's a raise in the temperature. That mutant protein now is inactivated, and you can see what the effects of it are. Those types of, those types of that, that makes for good test questions, temperature sensitivity, what happens when you knock out the activity of a certain protein. You can also overexpress with pretty fine control in, in yeast. Xenopus mammalian is primarily a biochemical system. Okay. Um, in particular, Xenopus, they're very, very good. Okay. Xenopus eggs, when they get fertilized, basically without growing, they basically go through 10 rounds of replication, I think, during its development. So they're basically just primed to go. Okay. So people basically take those eggs, you bust them open, you have a very rich extract for things like DNA replication. And that's, of course, in vitro, so in the test tube. Okay, can get multiple rounds. We'll be, we'll be talking about the system a lot today. Okay, and then in the vitro system, usually use uh, chromatin DNA from cells, or sometimes you use sperm DNA as a template. It's easy to get. It's already chromatinized. So it gives you a, you know, a reasonable reflection of, a, of, of DNA in a cell. Right. So concept of how DNA, or the, the model for how DNA replication is limited to one cycle of replication per cell cycle is called licensing. Did Dr. Larrabee talk about licensing? I think he has from years, in previous years. This year, did he? No? Okay. It, it, whether he did or not, it's, it's okay. I just, if he did, you're all, you've already heard this. If you didn't, then that's it's good. I, I mean, I always cover this. So my point, I'm going to go through experiments that illustrate the points of the model. But it's, this is not meant to be a mystery, you know, like a, like a mystery novel. I'm going to tell you what licensing is, then we'll go through the experiments, then I'll reiterate the points again. Let's start with S phase, okay? Actually, let's start with G1. This is supposed to represent either a cell or a nucleus, it doesn't have anything. Let's say it's a nucleus. This is the DNA, and plus are these factors that are required for uh, DNA synthesis, for replication to occur. In S phase, these are supposed to represent origins that are fired in the forks. So you're going S phase, we're going through DNA synthesis, that's where the name comes from. And the little parentheses denotes that you're using up these factors that are required for replication. In G2, you now have two strands. You have the parental and the, and the progeny strands of DNA. And these plus factors are gone because they've been used up, inactivated. So that's why you don't go through a second round of replication. Starting second round there in a eukaryotic system, I mean, basically a cell will probably go through apoptosis and die. Then something happens during mitosis, 
And it's simply part of it is just the membrane breaks down, allows these inactive beta factors, either they're active ones that can now access the DNA, or some protein comes in and takes the inactivated um, factors and activates them. But mitosis, this is where the licensing or re occurs. So you can then be primed to go back to S phase. So in mitosis, you reactivate those replication factors. What are the primary factors involved in licensing? Well, actually, let's start with what's the key event? It's the loading of helicase. So I'm really not going to introduce any new players. Okay? Lineup cards are staying the same, with one exception. Okay? So what's involved in loading helicase? Or CDT1, CDC6. These are three proteins that I asked you to already know the names of. And MCM, as I said, you can know it as the helicase or MCM. I don't care. And then we'll talk a little bit about that science here we're going to discuss deals with this protein called geminin and its role. <clears throat> Alright, so just to review, what, what is helicase recruitment? Remember, ORC, in eukaryotes, ORC binds to the origin. ORC just stands for origin recognition complex. And what, well, I told you this is oversimplified and slightly inaccurate, what I want you to know is that ORC recruits CBC6 and CBT1, that these together help recruit the MCM complex. So I said that's, that's gross, I shouldn't say gross, it's somewhat oversimplified and certainly slightly inaccurate, but it, it gets the point across. Right. So this event is really, it's, it's licensing, and this event, having this event occurs, is what um, is, is licensing, and that's what regulates whether the cell, that making sure that the cell goes through replication only once per cell cycle. Okay, let's talk about some of the experiments that, um, that helped to develop this model. Um, chromatin, or in some cases, an isolated nuclei, are put into a Xenopus extract. And you get multiple rounds of replication. That includes actually a nuclear membrane forming, breaking down, for, getting, forming, getting replication, membrane breaking down. So it goes through a mimic of the cell cycle, actually, in these extracts. So now let's go through, well, now let's mess with the system and see what happens. Okay. In this case, what they've done is they've injected, they, technically, I guess, in this experiment, they injected the nucleus into the egg, let's just say into the egg or the extract, it's the same thing. What they're going to take advantage of, and this is part of the reason I covered it, because in this experiment, what they're going to do is, remember, DNA, it's N14, it's light. What they're going to do in this system is they're going to add nucleotides that are N15 heavy, and then they're going to follow replication. And what happens is if you have, um, okay, well, let's see. All right, well, what they've done here is, is in the legend they tell you that they've added protein synthesis inhibitors. And what happens is instead of getting that normal multiple rounds, it just stops after one round. And you can follow it because by adding the heavy precursors, it's going to go to this intermediate density, okay, just like the mesosynthetic stall experiment after one round of replication. Okay. Without these protein synthesis inhibitors, it would continue, you know, whatever. I don't know how many you can get out of the system. Five, six rounds. Okay. Right, so they said, okay, well, by messing with the system, we now, we, we, we can stop it here. Okay. What, what's, so they said, well, what's going on? Okay. 
Here's synthesis. If we just take our nuclei and put them into, this, into these eggs or into this extra, it'll just go round and round and round. But by adding this chemical, we've stopped it. And so if you look, they're like, well, what, what could be happening between here and getting back around to here? Well, the most striking thing is mitosis, right? I mean, the membrane breaks apart. The DNA, if you were in, you know, would, in the cell at least, would go to the opposite poles. So, so let's try and mimic that, at least the nuclear membrane, breaking down by adding a chemical that permeabilizes the nuclear membrane. Okay. And by doing that, you're now able to get subsequent rounds. They just show the second, but it'll go through, if you keep that chemical there, it'll go through m multiple. If you have the protein synthesis inhibitor, as long as you, have, you keep permeabilizing the membrane, it'll go through multiple rounds. Okay. So what does this tell you? I mean, it tells you you can add some chemicals and mess with it. But n not just with this experiment, but with, with many. I mean, they came up with this model of licensing where there's a licensing factor. That is licensing for DNA replication. There's some factor that's important. It licenses the DNA to replicate. After it replicates one time, that factor must get used up. And somehow, by mimicking mitosis, we can restore it. Okay. So I'm just really I'm reiterating the model again. But here's at least one of many experiments that help people get to that point. All right. Here's an experiment that helps to kind of um, reiterate this point, okay, or help to illustrate this point. So what we're going to do is we're going to take um, cells, synchronize them, and then pluck out the nuclei when the cells are either all in the G1 phase or the G2 phase. Okay? And then we're going to take those nuclei and we're going to either leave them intact, permeabilize them, or permeabilize them and repair them as a control, and put them into just Xenopus extracts where replication should occur. Okay? Alright. So if you take G1 nuclei and you put them into an extract, check means you get replication. Could be a plus, might be better. Right? However, if you take nuclei from cells that were G2 and put them into this confident um, Xenopus extract, you do not get replication. If shown by an X, could be a minus. So does that make sense with the model, right? G1's on prior to S phase, G2's after. So that would be consistent with something getting used up in the S phase. Okay. If you take these nuclei and permeabilize them, both can undergo replication. So the idea is that something in that extract when you allow it to get into the nucleus, it's somehow restoring that inactivated factor, that licensing factor. As we said, I already told you that licensing is really the events that lead to loading of that helicase. And then, of course, you should have control. How do you know that it's not just the event of permeabilization itself? There's something about that chemical you added that just somehow reactivated that factor. That's not really coming from the extracts. Well, they take the nuclei that have been permeabilized, repair them. So they've been exposed to the chemical, but now you just repair the membrane, you put them back in. G1 nuclei still had, of course, it still was licensed. The G2, it needs something from that extract. So that's just, the last one's really just a control, a good control. 
So everyone see how this is consistent with the model and helps to basically just further evidence for that model, that licensing model. As I've said, I've shown you a very minor subset of selected experiments that help to illustrate this model, but just to kind of go through it again, the next two, the next two are just reiterating the model once again. Um, prior to replication, that nucleus contains an active licensing factor. As you replicate that DNA, that licensing factor is used up or inactivated. And then it's the, it's the dissolving, the breaking down of the nuclear membrane during mitosis that allows that licensing factor to somehow be reactivated, okay, whether it's active factor that was in the cytoplasm um, that's coming in or some protein that comes in that modifies that factor in some way that allows it to be activated. Okay. This is just a text summary. Some people like pictures, some people like words. Um, but here are the different aspects of the model. Entry to the S phase, or that is the beginning of DNA synthesis requires an active licensing factor. That active, excuse me, that licensing factor gets used up or inactivated during S phase. <laughs> when I say G1, I should formally I should say DNA or in the G1 phase of the cell cycle are common for DNA replication, whereas those in the G2 phase are not. Um, replication in the G2 phase is blocked because that licensing factor has been used or inactivated. And then that licensing factor is once again activated during mitosis. Let me just say, during this time, there was a lot of people. There were a lot of con a lot of a lot of um, biological phenomena that people realized were actually getting things from the cytoplasm to the nucleus. Okay. In this late '80s period, for instance, um, glutocorticoid receptor. That's when people realized that actually, even though it's a transcription factor, it sits out. Heat shock protein holds it out in the cytoplasm until it binds to its ligand, that is glutocorticoids, and then goes into the, it's released and then goes into the nucleus. Um, NF-kappa B, are people familiar with glutocorticoid receptor? They know what that is roughly. NF-kappa B, are people familiar with that transcription factor? Same thing with it. It was in this time frame, the late age, where people realized that it's being held out in the cytoplasm by an inhibitor, and then when the proper signals come, the inhibitor is broken down, and then NF-kappa B goes in. Okay. So a lot of, a lot of biological, several biological phenomena people were realizing that the regulation was really at the level of getting things into and out of the nucleus, in including licensing. <clears throat> okay. So now we're going to go on to this paper from Science. As I said, it's fairly old, but it helps to illustrate. Um, it, helps to, to talk for, it helps me to talk about um, what's going on during <coughs> licensing and also to talk about this protein called geminin. Does anyone have any questions about what we talked about now before we go on? No, okay. Just out of curiosity, who here has heard of Geminin? Okay, did, did Dr. Uh, Larrabee talk about it in cell biology or? No, just in cell, it's, people cover molecular biology classes these days. Okay. All right, well this, this, will be, this won't be new for many of you, but um, okay. So let's go back to when this paper came out. Um, Gemini was thought to be a factor that inhibited the binding of the MCM complex, which is the helicase. The mechanism was unknown, and that's what this paper addresses. And Gemini is, is uh, present only in higher eukaryotes like human and xenophus, not in yeast. Right. Um, this figure comes from that commentary, that little two, two or two and a half page commentary. 
let's just go through what's going on, and then you'll see the experiments that help to develop this model. Now, this was already known. Orc interacts with CDC6 and CDT1 to recruit the helicase. It says slash CDC6, CDC slash 18, because the name of the same protein is different in Palm Bay and Cerebaceae. Don't worry about that. It's just CDC6. That's the only name I asked you to know. But if you're wondering why it's like that, that's why. Okay, that's in G1. And so this is licensed. Replication occurs in S phase. Here's the replication machinery taking off the helicase in front. We've already talked about this type of thing. What happens is CDT1 is now bound by Gemini. This is the protein we'll talk about. And that helps to keep it from interacting with ORC and helping to recruit the helicase. CDC6 slash 18 is somehow inactivated. In some cases, it's proteolysis. The gemini hangs around through G2, and it basically is there to sequester any CDT1 that's around to keep it from recruiting the helicase. Toward the end of M phase, one of the things that happens is gemini now breaks down. Other things happen, which now allow CDC6 and CDT1 to be um, recruited by ORC to the origin. And then eventually MCM1 is, MCM, I'm sorry, MCM is low, um, the helicase is low, is um, recruited, and you're once again licensed. As I said, this paper deals with what is Geminin doing? Nobody really fully, nobody really had a good idea at that point. All right. So we're going to go through these experiments. Um, the first one is really, the, the part A of this experiment is really just a quality control. How good is my reagent? So really, people are just doing a Western blot. Is there anyone here who doesn't know what a Western blot is? I, I'm not, I just want to make sure that everybody, OK. So in this Western blot, they're using their antibody that they made against this protein geminin. And they're just showing you the pre-immune doesn't pick up anything. And the immune serum picks up this individual band. The idea is that if you, you're next going to do a comium presentation, if this thing were to pick up seven bands, you know, you would have no idea what was comium precipitating because it could be interacting with geminin, which you're interested in, or it could be interacting with these other things. So it's just, you're just making sure that it's not going to be garbage in, garbage out. Okay, you quality control your reagent. Now you do a co-immunum precipitation. Does anyone want me to go through this? Does anyone not know what a co-immunum precipitation is? Okay, all right. So you're going to immunoprecipitate with the um, geminin antibody, and then you just stain, and you see what other protein bands you see. And so the idea is that um, those proteins form a complex with geminin in the cell, okay? And so they pick up primarily two bands, one that's around 60-ish and one that's, well, actually, they say 65, I guess, and one that's 130. Um, these are just some controls. The pre-immune is not just like the secondary antibody is picking up the way your precipitate is bringing something down. And this, you just boil your sample, then you do the immunoprecipitation for us. The boiling should break up any interactions. And so once again, you only bring out Gemini. So what they're going to do now is they're going to follow up this P65 protein. Okay. The reason they want to follow it up is they're interested in Gemini. They want to see what does it interact with in a cell. So they're going to identify that protein. And what they find out is that Gemini is associated with protein we've talked about a lot already, CDT1. And this just shows you the sequence of the gene that they eventually clone that encodes that 65 kilodalton protein. 
right, that's, that's the left side. Of course, I mean, you know, the, first of all, you can't read it. It's, it's, not, it's not sharp enough, but the point is just this. Okay? Don't worry about trying to read any of this. Now let's look at the experiment on the right side, which has been blown up here. This is, once again, just quality control. They make an antibody in CDT1, and they're just showing you, look, our antibody is very specific. Okay? Same as the first figure. Okay, now they're going to do an IP, and they're going to, um, I'm sorry, wait, let's see. Oh, okay, let's see, let's, let's see. Let's see. Um, when they do a commuter precipitation with the CDT1 antibody, of course they bring out CDT1. Then they also co-IP a protein that's 33 kill dogs, and that's Geminin. So they're just showing that the inverse, you know, you IP with one, you see the complex, you IP with the other one, you see the same complex. Um, these are stain gels, now they're going to do the same experiment here. They're going to IP with Geminin, then they're going to do Western block with either the Geminin antibody or CDT1. This is just, this is just more, just more um, verification of the same point. If you IP with Geminin, of course, when you do the Western block with Geminin, you're going to get Geminin signal. But you also show that you're specifically showing not just stage gels, but Western, which are more specific, that it is CDT1 that's coming down. Okay. Here you're IP with the CDT1 antibody, then you do Western with CDT1 and Geminin antibodies. Of course, CDT1 is going to bring down CDT1. And you also show that IP is Geminin with your antibody, which is a little bit more specific than staining. Okay. Then the last experiment E is they're going to use what are called GST pulldowns. And let me um, describe those. Some people may not know what that is. So the idea here is you want to make things solid state. That is, you want to be able to put your protein onto a column and then see what sticks to it. Okay? So what you do here is you express your protein. Part of this is also is it makes it a little easier to express these proteins in E. coli sometimes. Is there's a protein called glutathione S-transferase. The acronym for it is GST, and you fuse it to your protein of interest, X. Okay. This case is GST Geminin. X is Geminin in this case. You then put it on a, on a resin. I'm sorry, you can't see this, right? Okay? All right. Well, I'll, I'll describe it. I'm sorry about that. Um, you put it onto a resin that displays glutathione, and this is what GST binds to. So you put it on that column, and you wash it, and so you have glutathione bound to your GSTX. So it's solid state now, right? Basically, you've now made a column that displays X. Well, it's GSTX, but, right? You can now wash can now interact, let that interact with purified different proteins. The idea, so why would you want to show this? You've already shown that it's in a complex. What this does is it actually, so you have GSTX purified, and you have the things that you're binding to it purified. You can now show that the interaction is direct. Right? In this case, you don't know if it's geminin bound to 1, 2, 3, 4 and then CDT1. Here, 
you've got pure proteins. There's nothing, no other way for it to interact. So it shows it's direct. Now, some people say this is a little bit artificial because it's in a on a column, whatever. But you're always going to have those kinds of issues if you're going to do experiments in a test tube. But to the extent, you know, that that you think your protein is folded properly and all that, it can show you that an interaction is direct. So what do they see here? As a control, they also make a column that displays just GST so that you don't know that it's not binding to GST alone. Just a control, right? So it basically would be the same column with only GST, and you're asking the same question. So what do you see? Not surprisingly, I mean, it's in the paper, so you know you publish positive results. Human. Homo sapiens CDT1 interacts with GST geminin, but not with GST alone. Xenopus CDT1 interacts with geminin, but not GST alone. And then just a control, they have this um, human subunit, MCM, MCM31 subunits of the helicase. It doesn't inter interact with either geminin or GST. Okay, just, you know, is geminin just the sticky protein that binds to everything? No. Okay. So it shows that the interaction between Geminin and CDT1, at least in these conditions, is a direct interaction. All right. So, so, so one, I want to make I, it makes that point, and two, it also, um, I just want to introduce this idea of showing direct interactions in a test tube by using things like GST. There are other tags you can use, but conceptually, it's the same thing. So we have this information. Gemini interacts with CDT1 in a cell based on our IPs. We know it interacts directly, but so far, so what? I mean, wh you know, what, what does it actually do? And that's what the next, what's the function? That's what the next uh, experiment addresses. Okay. Um, the, in their assays, they're going to use the GST versions of uh, CDT1 and Gemini. Don't worry about A and B. They just they're, all they're showing you there is that the GST versions are behaving the same, at least with respect to direct interactions. Okay, so their proteins aren't their proteins they're putting on aren't just totally messed up. That's that's all they're trying to show you in A and B. Okay. Right. So here are the assays. Okay. In this case, what they're going to do is they're going to take their chromatin template and they're going to allow the Xenopus extract to interact with it. And then what they're going to do is they're going to say, hey, is ORC binding to it? ORC2 is one of the subunits, so this is just a stand-in for the whole ORC complex. MCM4 is a um, subunit of the MCM complex or the helicase, so it's a stand-in for the whole helicase. They're going to allow those uh, proteins to interact with the template, and then they're going to take that template um, isolate it, and then do westerns on the proteins that are found, and they're going to say, hey, are these guys here or are they not here? Okay. When you don't add anything, not surprisingly, we said the, the complexes are competent for replication, so of course, ORC and MCM are going to bind. So that's kind of your, your, you know, your, your uh, default, the ground state. Okay. Lane two, they just didn't add DNA. Alright, so if they just go through the, the, the manipulations of the, of the isolation, they don't bring anything down. So it's not just 
okay, the spinning and whatever beat you have to do isolation, that's not enough to bring them down. Okay? If you add CDT1 by itself, you know, maybe a little, it's a little down, but basically it's fine, right? So it's basically, let's just call that unchanged. Okay. But when you add Geminin by itself, Ork can still bind, but MCM doesn't. So somehow Geminin is blocking the ability of this extract to recruit MCM to the complex, which is what we said in that original model is what it does. Okay. Is my advisor you say, okay, well, how do you know that the Geminin you're adding, it just, you, you screwed up and it's, you know, when you isolated your buffer's pH 2 and you're just adding some acid, that's just screwing up everything. So what they're going to do is they're going to rescue the system. Now they're going to add the same amount of CDT1 back. Okay, so if you just added, like your thing was just um, um, contaminated with some protease that's clipping and the helicase and inactivating, the buffer conditions are just screwed up. Well, it shouldn't matter. You shouldn't be able to rescue it. So you add back the CDT1, and of course it's polished, so it works. So that's just a control telling you that the gem that you're adding isn't just some, you're not just gunking up the system. It's actually doing something specific. Okay, this is a really good paper. Okay. All right, so now you some function. Gemini now, now we know it interacts with CDT1, and we know that CDT1 is, that's what brings in the helicase, and we can show that somehow we know it binds, and that the functional consequence is now, presumably by Gemini binding to the CDT1, that it now blocks the recruitment of the helicase. Does that actually affect DNA replication? And that's been shown here. Lanes 1 through 4 are the same as 5 through 8, except 5 through 8 is a later time point. So let's just look at lanes 5 through 8, because it just shows the signal a little stronger. <coughs> this is just looking at DNA replication. In this case, what you're doing is you're adding radioactive nucleotides. You're running out the products on the gel, and you're looking at the replication products, and you get um, I don't fully know why, but you get, this is the signal you see, it's two bands, okay. This is just the control and nothing, this is the amount of replication you get. You add CVT1 by itself, it's a little down, but more or less it's the same, kind of similar to this. You add Geminin, lane 7, Replication is gone, okay. which is not a surprise, right? If Geminin blocks the helicase from binding, then it's given what you now know about replication, I already knew if I bored you on Tuesday or Thursday, last Thursday. No helicase, no replication. Once again, the good control is can you rescue the system, especially because you're blocking things. So, you know, if you just have an extract that's just totally screwed up, or your purified protein just has something, you know, there's something in there just messing everything up. You shouldn't be able to rescue the system, and you can. So it's specific. Okay. So you've gone from this IP, you IP Geminin, yeah, you IP Geminin, you brought down CDT1, then you showed it interacted, then based on, and not only showed that it, it forms a complex in the cell, you showed it interact directly, and now you show it can block the binding of the helicase, and that that consequence of that is that it actually blocks replication, at least in your in vitro system. Okay. 
And the final experiment they did was they looked at the expression profile of geminin and CDT1. What they did here is they synchronized cells in a cell cycle, and then they just took time points through various parts. Of course, as you go farther and farther, they get kind of a little bit more messed up. But what you can see is here they are in M, G1S. You can see G, that geminin is there in M, but by the beginning of G1, you don't see it anymore. Then it picks back up in S. CDT1, you see in G1, and this is where the helicase is going to start to get loaded. And then it's kind of there during the beginning of S, but then goes away and comes back. Um, cyclin, we didn't talk about that in this paper, but they just show that as another protein. And you see it coming up here in S, where you're gonna, I guess this is one that regulates replication. It's not really that relevant to this paper directly. And then work is pretty constant. Okay. So when you put these, these uh, expression profiles together with the data, that's where you come up with this kind of model, right? Gemini was there in S. It's kind of coming up to kind of sequester the CDT1. And then it kind of hangs around through the system just to make sure there's not any free-floating CDT1. If, if, it, if there is, it would bond to it and keep it out of the system. But then it breaks down in M, where CDT1 now has to rejoin or in order to load the helicase. And the other expression profiles of CDT1 are consistent with, with where you would expect it to act. If you compare what happens, so, so this paper was done in Zenepa's system. Let's talk about these key factors in the different systems. Let's compare Cerevisiae with Xenopus and mammals. These two are going to group together. CDC6 and Cerevisiae, it's unstable. So it's regulated by proteolysis. In Xenopus, it's stable. CDC6 is stable. What happens is it's exported into the cytoplasm. CDT1 accumulates during G1, and it's excluded from the nucleus, but some can hang around. I, I, sorry, it's excluded from the nucleus. In CDT1, it peaks at G1S, its levels decrease, but what is left gets inhibited by geminin. As we said, geminin binds to CDT1, sequesters it, and inhibits the recruitment. Then it gets broken down in M phase to allow CDT1 to now become active. Um, MCM1 is constitutively nuclear in both cases. Okay. So these are the ways these different key factors in licensing are regulated in these two different systems. Alright, before I go on, does anyone, so does anyone have any questions about those experiments? Okay. Is that more or less like, what people who covered Geminin already, that's what they've more or less covered in their kind of molecular biology classes? We've already seen this? Alright, so license origin. So this, now the next couple slides refers to the paper that we're going to discuss on Friday. Okay, um, license origins. Now. Many origins are licensed, but it actually turns out that only a fraction of them, that is actually a minority of them, actually get used during replication typically. Okay. The licensed origins that are unused are called dormant, and that term will come up in the paper that we'll talk about on Friday. The, the paper deals with a topic called replication stress, and that is various um, signals or DNA structure that can generate a slowing or stop of that replication fork. In, some, in the case of some oncogenes, when they're activated, that can actually cause replication stress. There are pathways that address these stalled replication forks. 
And if you have defects in these pathways that deal with stalled forks or that is replication stress, then that can lead to genome instability. And that can lead to several diseases, including cancer. And what, we'll, what this paper deals with is, is the, kind of the relationship <coughs> between dormant origins, <coughs> excuse me, and their role in helping to recover from replication stress. Okay. What I'm going to do with this paper is I'm going to take all of the figures and I'll put them on PowerPoint so I'll have them here for you guys to talk about. But the way we'll do this, I think, is I'll let you guys talk about, I'll give you, let you guys give a short introduction. I mean, we'll start the paper and some people can tell me what the paper is going to be about. And we'll go through the figures in the paper and people can just, there's a lot of them. And I'm not expecting to get through the whole, all of the experiments. That's okay. But we'll go through them. People will have opportunities to talk about different experiments, say what they were, what the interpretation was. And at the end, I think um, I'm going to try and start right at 1 and about 10 till, it starts at 1, right? Yeah, 1. And then about 10 till 2, I'm going to stop and then that's when we're go to, whatever we're through with the experiments, we'll then go to the discussion. People can talk about that. What I'll need you guys to do is when you talk is give me your name so I can give you credit. I know part of this is for your grade. So, but, you know, and I think what we'll do is we'll have everybody, once you've spoken once or twice, just kind of try and stay quiet and let other people talk, and then, um, but if nobody's talking, then, then, you know, we'll have to kind of play by ear, okay? Because this is kind of a big class. Okay, um, let me just say a little bit. So now we talk about licensing. That's really the main thing. But org binding is also regulated. And this information comes from this review, and this is the reference. Unless you really need, feel like you need to look at it, I wouldn't bother, because we're just going to talk about one part of the whole review. Okay. Org is regulated by different mechanisms in yeast versus xanthus versus mammalian systems. The only one I'm going to ask you to know is the mammalian one. Just to keep this simple. In mammalian cells, this ore complex, one of the subunits becomes ubiquitinated, and that leads to degradation. Right. In cell biology, you guys probably talked about ubiquitin. Right. Right. Okay. What happens at some point is that this orc one becomes, well, not at some point, after um, the M phase. It becomes phosphorylated and can rejoin the ore complex. <coughs> okay. So ore is regulated by release and degradation of this one subunit. Okay. That being the specific detail. What's the, what's the one thing that's common to all of these systems? You don't need to know the details. Is that in all cases, ORC has been activated after synthesis. Okay, different mechanisms. But in all cases, synthesis is occurring and as it's occurring, ORC is inactivated. Same kind of thing. You don't want DNA replication to happen more than once in a cell cycle. So this is one way to do it. Once again, it's after, so here's a, it's become two. You've replicated DNA, and once here in M phase, you've now separated those out to the two cells. That's after the M phase, in all cases, once again, that's activated. Very similar to licensing, right? Inactivate an S, activate again, 
during or after AMP. Okay. And the specific example, as I said, the one specific example I'm going to ask you to know is the mammalian case, where it's ubiquitination and degradation that, that regulates it. What type of experiments would you do in order to show when work? I'm sorry. I have a question on the previous slide. Um, is that diagram showing that sometimes ORC1 is polyubiquitinated and degraded, and degraded, but sometimes ubiquitin is replaced by a phosphate and reintroduced? No, it's, well, no. What it is is it's later in the path. I mean, as you go through amphase, you, this ubiquitin slows down. What happens is that this process stops, but it's, it's, it's hard to draw that. So, so we're just, not supposed to assume that's representative of the same ORC1 subunit being ubiquitinated and then phosphorylated. No, I think later in the process what happens is the, the pathways that turn on the ubiquitination get um, inhibited and the ones that phosphorylate it, it's not the same subunit. It's, it, they're degraded. What happens is some of the subunits that are being, the ORC's being made in the cell, but what happens is later on this pathway is inhibited and this one becomes more predominant. When it gets phosphorylated, it now is able to join. It's not actually the same one. It's not drawn very well. You're right. Okay. Okay. All right. So what type of experiment would you show when ORC is associated with DNA, with, with, with uh, the DNA? When is ORC associated? Okay. So once again, we're going to use these Xenopus extracts. Okay. And what we're going to do is we're going to use two different extracts. One is wild type. That's the plus... Or two, the other is an immunodepleted extract. That is, what you've done is you've used an antibody against or two. You've added that antibody and then you've pulled it down. So you've taken all the orc out of your xenobus system. Okay, does everyone understand what immunodepletion? What's going on? Using an antibody against or two, it binds to it. It's all a big complex. So if you take the or two and you pull it down, you spin it out. It's not in your extract anymore. No more. There's no more. So what you're going to ask is you're going to ask the nuclei that you put into these extracts to basically it has to supply ORC that's already bound to the DNA because you have no ORC in your extract. Okay, does everyone get that? So this is just a control with sperm DNA. You put in... Um, you put it in that wild-type extract you get, and here's just, you're measuring DNA synthesis on the Y scale. The X is time. The wild-type extract replicates DNA. The immunodepleted one does not. Okay, sperm DNA doesn't have work on it. Okay. In your, that's just a control. Here's your experiment. So what you're going to take is this, these Chinese hamster ovary cells, Cho cells, doesn't matter, just mammalian cells that have been um, synchronized in the cell cycle. And what you're going to do is you're going to take nuclei from different parts of the cell cycle and you're going to say, when does, when is ORC, active ORC associated with the DNA? Only if active ORC is associated with the DNA in those nuclei from whether it's metaphase, early in G1, mid G1, later in G1, that's when you're going to get replication. Does that make sense? Right? So I'm good with that? Okay. All right, so let's just go through. So you take the Chinese hamster ovary cells, you synchronize them, and you take them from metaphase. Okay, so 
So from metaphase cells, so you're in mitosis. You're always going to have a wild type. This is going to pretty much look the same in all cases. And here's, in the wild type extract, you're good. You've got everything. It's active. But in the amino depleted, no activity. Okay, you take them a little later, one hour into G1. Here's the wild type. It's always, as I said, it's always going to look like that. Here, we wait a really long time. Now you just start to see a little bit of activity at the end. Okay. And what you really want is when the two graphs start to look the same. One and a half hours, getting pretty close. Then two, three, four, the two graphs are superimposable. So you can actually see ORC becoming activated during the cell cycle using this assay. Does everyone see that? If people want to look at this, uh, by the way, if people want to look at this experiment a little bit more closely, this is the reference. All right. So, actually, it should say active. Active work is not associated with DNA and mitosis and early, meaning that first one hour time work, but is active and, and bound by mid-G1. Let's not worry about, I'm going to just talk about this slide and let's not worry about the last two. So when we talked about origins way back on Thursday, we said that one of the things that many origins have is a place where um, proteins bind and help to facilitate the process of, of getting proteins onto that origin region. And so in some cases, what are thought to be transcriptional activators historically, there are binding sites for those and they, they function doing very similar things at replication origins as they do at the, at the promoters. And I'm just going to go through four of the things that they do, and then we'll just stop here, and that's, that'll, be, that'll be good. Um, so they recruit components of the replication complex and facilitate their, excuse me, the assembly of that complex. They change DNA structure at the origin. They recruit proteins that alter chromatin structures, such as histone-modifying enzymes. And then they can actually recruit pre-replication complexes to certain subregions. Okay. Um, the example I gave was 4 That's actually covered in the next few slides. Let's not worry about that, okay? I think we've covered enough for today. Okay. But this is just kind of a laundry list. What do these kind of facilitators of replication, what can they do there? So basically, they help to recruit proteins. They help to stabilize those proteins that need to form there in order to let replication occur. They also can change the structure of the chromatin such that it facilitates replication being able to occur. The reason I kind of want to talk about this last one is, is just that, um, is that actually what happens is some origins fire earlier. Okay, and that kind of gets the fact that you know you have some dormant ones, some you know some that are active, but let, that's, that's fine, it doesn't matter. Let's just, let's just keep this simple, and I just want, here's this laundry list of things that these activators do at Origins. All right, All right so that's it. that's it. We'll see you guys on Friday. Um, as I said, I'll have the figures from those papers, both the, the uh, ones in the paper per se and the supplemental ones. 
on a PowerPoint so that people can say, I want to talk about this figure, that figure. And as much as possible, I'm going to try and stay out of it. Um, and what I'll need you guys to do is, as you speak, if you just let me know your names, because I'm, I'm, frankly, I don't know any of them right now. Um, so, okay. Does anyone have any questions about today's lecture? No? Okay. All right. See you guys on Friday.